If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I am one of the pastors around here, and it is my honor and my privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided you for you in the pew in front of you. Grab one of the black Bibles and go to page 861, bottom right-hand corner, right by the big letter 6, number 6. We will uh, begin reading from verse 1 down to 11, and we'll work our way through this passage a little bit at a time, should be around 45 minutes or so. And now we have come to the most important part of our week. We have the privilege, as we have gathered, to hear the Lord God Almighty, to speak to us, His people, through His precious and inerrant Word. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to His church. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. On a Sabbath, while He was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand had withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, would you be pleased to come to us and to help us to understand what it is we just read? Would you give us eyes that we might see your son Jesus? Because more than food and clothing and air, we, we need Jesus. And you've promised that you will bless those who put their trust in you. And these are your people who have placed their trust in you. 
Would you bless them? Would you bless them with a greater view of and appreciation of and affection for your son Jesus, their Savior? Would you transform them and give them joy? Would you give them freedom? And would you give them peace through what we've just read? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. What if I told you that the whole point of your life was your day off? I mean, hear me out here. What if I told you that how you rest says far more about you than how you work? What if I said that your play ethic was a better assessment of your spiritual health than your work ethic. In the passage that we have just read, Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And something I noticed while we read, is not a single one of you gasped. And I, I see no indication on the faces before me that your mind has been blown by what Jesus just said. And that's not probably a reflection on you. Probably that's more of a reflection on me and men like me, who for the most part have not done a good job of teaching on the Sabbath and Sabbath things. And so I hope to do a little of that today. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Rest and rejoice in Him, who is our provider and healer. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. Rest and rejoice in Him, who is our provider and healer. So we'll look at verses 1 to 4, and we'll see that Jesus is the provider. We'll look at verses 6 to 11, and we'll see that Jesus is the healer. And then at the end, we'll circle back and we'll pick up verse 5 where we'll see that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. But to get there, in, to move forward in this passage, we have to actually move backwards in the Bible. So as I told you earlier, we are on page 861 of the church Bible. Well, actually, a lot of what's going on here has, a, has more to do with the 180 or the 860 pages that have come before this point. And so we need to go backwards in order to go forwards. And let's go backwards, all the way backwards, to Genesis chapter 1. You can turn there if you want. If you still have your Bible open, Genesis chapter 1. You will find that in the church Bible on page 1. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, God created all that is. And each day of creation ends with the same phrase. There was evening and there was morning. So if you have your Bible open, look at verse 5. There was evening, there was morning, and the first day. Skip down to verse 8. Evening, morning, second day. Skip down to verse 13. Evening. Morning, third day, and it goes on like this for all the days of creation. And now, now go to chapter 2. So if you have one of the church Bibles, that's on the next page. 
And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Notice the seventh day is different than the other days of creation. It was not a day of work. It was a day of resting, a day of rejoicing. Now, you should understand that God is omnipotent, meaning He has unlimited power. God resting on the seventh day was not because God was tired or He needed a break. Hanging 200 billion trillion stars could make a man tired, but this is God we're talking about. It did not make God tired. And so why rest? God's resting on the seventh day was for the enjoyment of all that He had done. The seventh day for God was not for rejuvenation. It was for rejoicing. And did you notice that there was something missing about the seventh day? Evening and morning, the seventh day. It's not there. Because the seventh day was never supposed to end. The day of resting, the day of rejoicing was never supposed to come to an end. All that existed, the stars and the seas, every galaxy, every sage-grouse, Every planet, every platypus, every image-bearing person was created by God and for the glory of God and for the enjoyment of God, world without end. And then something happened. Sin and darkness entered the world that God had made through the rebellion of the first man, Adam, and a curse fell upon God's creation. That happens in chapter 3. And resting became toiling in Genesis 3. Rejoicing became mourning. Harmony descended into disharmony. But in the middle of the curse, a single photon of God's divine light broke through the darkness. And off the lips of God Himself, a promise came that one will come who will reverse this curse. One will come who will reverse the effects of sin on creation and on mankind. There is one who will come who will bring rest and joy and harmony and who will restore the seventh day. And so to keep God's people looking forward to that day, God built rhythms of resting, of rejoicing into the life of His people. Their lives were built around a pattern of seven days, and God baked that pattern into the very national constitution of His chosen people. So skip ahead to Exodus chapter 20. That's the next book after Genesis, Genesis then Exodus chapter 20, if you're using one of the church Bibles, that is on page 61. 
Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 8, we read, Remember the Sabbath day, that's the seventh day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The seventh day, the Sabbath day, became a marker for God's chosen people. It was one of two covenant signs that God gave to His people to say that they were His. Six days you shall work, and one day you shall rest. Here is the proof I'm giving to the world that you are mine. You will work for six days, and then on the seventh day you will rest, and you will rejoice in my provision for you. You will trust that I will provide for you. And understand that observing the Sabbath was an act of faith. Because there's a lot more work that can be done in seven days than can be done in six. And so Israel was to trust that God would provide for them, that they were called to be His chosen people, and they were to rest in His good provision. And just to drive this point home even further, God told His people to rest even the land every seven years. So on the seventh year, Israel was not allowed to sow their fields or their vineyards. What grew up in their fields and in their vineyards was to be left alone. And this was a tremendous act of faith. I mean, just do the math. It means that God would have to provide enough for them in, six, in the sixth year to provide almost three years worth of food. Enough food for the sixth year, and then enough food for the seventh year where the land is resting, and then enough food for the eighth year while it, the, it's growing up. That's a huge act of faith. But they were to be a people of faith. And the Sabbath was to be a marker that they were God's people. They were people who were marked by trust in God as their provider. But many of you know the story. Israel failed in many ways to trust that God would provide for them, and they profaned the Sabbath through their work and through other things. And in God's mercy, He did not destroy them. He disciplined them, and He gave them grace. And at one point, their cities were destroyed and carried in, and they were carried into exile for disobedience. But God spared them. And He returned them to the land. And when God's people returned from exile to the land that God had promised to them, when they returned, they determined that they would keep the Sabbath and not be exiled again. Now, actually, God's rules, God's laws around the Sabbath the seventh day of rest, were rather loose. It was a day of resting and rejoicing. It just said, 
don't work. And that was about it. The question was, for these people coming back to the land, what does it mean to work? What is considered work? And so they began to create definitions around work, around what it meant to, to work on the, on the Sabbath so they wouldn't do it. And so those definitions were then codified into law. Not God's law, mind you, man's law. And by the time Jesus Christ is born, these laws created by man around what it means to work on the Sabbath, they're out of control. I mean, God said, take a day off and enjoy me. And religious people said, well, let's make a list and a rule book. And it was a big rule book. And the Talmud, there are 24 chapters devoted specifically to Sabbath regulations, 39 categories of work. I'll give you some examples. On the Sabbath, bathing was forbidden. Not because bathing was work. But because while you're bathing, it's possible that you might spill some water on the floor. And then sopping up the water on the floor, you would clean the floor, which was work. And so bathing was permitted. Moving a chair was not allowed on the Sabbath. Not because moving a chair was work. But because in moving a chair on a dirt floor, you might create a rut in the floor which was far too close to sowing a field, which was, which was work. Women were forbidden from looking into the mirror on the Sabbath. Not for vanity's sake, but if they happened to notice a gray hair, they might be tempted to pluck it out, and grooming was work, and grooming was forbidden on the Sabbath. I'm not making this up. I've got more. In the late 90s, the late 1990s, that is, there was some clarification from Orthodox rabbis about blowing and picking your nose on the Sabbath. Here's the concern, that in so doing, you might inadvertently pluck a nose hair, which would be considered grooming, which was work, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. Now, before any of you rush the stage to confess your sin for the detestable thing you did yesterday, I'm happy to announce to you today that this is not a violation of the Sabbath to pick your nose on Saturday. So praise the Lord for His kind grace to us all. But that just goes to show how ridiculous these things became. What was meant to be a day of resting and rejoicing became a day of ritual and regulation. What was meant to be a day for freedom and for fun and for enjoying your family became a day of fear and enslavement. The Sabbath which God gave to His people to enjoy Him became a means through which religious people would control them and condemn them. And all of that explains what's going on here in Luke chapter 6. So let's read verses 1 to 4 again. On a Sabbath, one random Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, 
Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to some who were with him? And so once again, in order to move forward, we have to go backwards, which is why it's so important to read all of your Bible. It was not illegal for Jesus' disciples to pluck and to eat some of the heads of grain as they walked through the grain fields. There were provisions in God's law that when you were walking along a field, you were allowed to grab some of the grain and eat it yourself. Now, some people have this idea that God's laws are restrictive. And, and it's true. In, in, in one sense, God's laws are restrictive. They're restrictive in the same way that a railing on the edge of a cliff is restrictive. And no one is walking along a path on the edge of a 200-foot cliff and says, look at this restriction. I thought we were in a free country. But we do this with God's laws. And into God's law, he wrote this, into his word, he wrote this law, which said that if you had a field and you had a harvest of your field, you were to leave the edges of your field unharvested. Just parts of your vineyard. I don't want you to harvest parts of your vineyard because people might come through, foreigners especially, who don't have land, and they might need something for themselves or for their family, and they're allowed to grab and take and eat. So you were allowed to walk through someone else's field and to grab a handful of grain and to feed yourself. That was in God's law. You just weren't allowed to put out the sickle. Like, okay, so you could take a handful of grain, but you can't fire up the combine. Pretty simple law. And this is what the disciples are doing. But that is not what's got the Pharisees all torqued off. Jesus' disciples are doing this, which was, which was allowed, but they were doing it on the Sabbath. By picking grain and rubbing the husks and blowing away the shaft, they were violating the no-work laws that were on the books. Because to the Pharisee, plucking and rubbing and blowing would have been considered reaping and threshing and winnowing, preparing food for yourself, which was work. So they objected. And notice how Jesus answers in verse 3. Have you not read? He points to the Bible. Interesting to think about, isn't it? When you're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, appealing to the authority of Scripture. Have you not read? And this is a challenge to them. Because, of course, they had read. They were the experts of God's law. But the reality is that sometimes those who read the Bible the most are those, those who understand it the least. And Jesus' answer goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to an event in the life of David. If you're following the church's one-year reading plan, you read this just a couple of weeks ago, which, by the way, well done for continuing to read before David was king in Israel, there was another king in Israel. His name was Saul, and he was a tall and handsome guy, and he was really insecure. He had disobeyed God, 
And God had rejected him as the king. But as you know, kings don't generally like leaving their throne to other people. And so Saul stuck around. And it became clear to Saul that God had chosen David to be the king in Israel. People liked David well enough because, well, he loved God and there was this giant he killed once. And Saul became very jealous of David and he tried to murder David. But David escaped from Saul. He took some men and he fled in a rush to a town called Nob. And they were hungry and the only food around was holy bread called the bread of the presence. It's called the bread of the presence because it was bread that was placed on a table in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. And it was holy bread that was only allowed to be eaten by priests. And David was not a priest. But David's men and David were famished. And so the priest, a man named Ahimelech, gives to these men the forbidden bread. And Jesus brings this up. And to to the Pharisees, this would have been a very difficult passage in case law. They were breaking the rules. Ahimelech was breaking the rules by giving David and his men the bread. But you see, Ahimelech understood something the Pharisees had ignored, baked into God's word, which is that David's life was more important than the ceremonial regulations concerning bread. And so Jesus is telling the guys, you you don't get it, do you? You're all hung up on rules and regulations and religion. The Sabbath is for resting and rejoicing and relationship. The Sabbath is for giving joy, not withholding it. Now, Jesus might have led his disciples any old way he wanted on the Sabbath, but he led them through a grain field. Because maybe they didn't have time to eat where they were going. And maybe he just wanted to give his boys a granola bar on the way. Because he's their provider. And he loves them. And he wants them to know that when you're with me, I'll take care of you. So let's walk through the grain field. I bet if you asked any mom with young kids in this room to reach into any one of their many bags that they bring with them, and they could produce for you a snack of some kind or another, because that's what moms do. They need to make sure their kids are taken care of. My grandmother always had a bowl of peanut M&M's on a bookshelf in her house. Peanut M&M's because my my grandmother was a godly woman and she knew which M&M's were best. (laughs) But you know, I never saw my grandmother eat one because that wasn't the point. Why did she have a bowl of M&M's on her bookshelf that she would never eat? Every grandmother in this room knows exactly why my grandmother had a bowl of M&M's on the bookshelf. Because one never knows when the grandkids may stop by, and they need to know there's always goodies at grandma's house. Well, Jesus is the same way. If you will simply open your eyes to see, you will see that your God has filled your world with a million reminders that I got you. You stick close to me and I will take care of you. I will provide for you. Just look at the birds. I take care of them. And you're a million times more valuable to me than them. There will always be M&Ms on the shelf. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, 
I don't care what day of the week it is. These are my boys. And I'm going to take care of them. I made the wheat. I walked them through the field. Because I wanted them to enjoy a snack. So you back off. And this is the very thing that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees with again on another Sabbath. Let's pick up reading in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there with a right hand who was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might have a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I'm asking you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Look at verse 10. After looking around at them all, he said to them, said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, back in verse 6, we see that Jesus is in church on the Sabbath. <laughs> this is Luke's fifth time telling us it's like, it's like, okay, Luke, geez, we get it. On this particular Sabbath, there's a fellow in church with a withered hand, and he, sitting near to this man is the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, remember, Jesus could have taken any way to get to where he's going. He took him through a grain field on the Sabbath day. He could have went to any synagogue, but he chose the one with the guy with the withered hand. And he could have chosen any day of the week to heal this man, but he chose to heal him on the Sabbath. This feels like a setup. And these boys walked right into it. And by the way, Jesus still does this kind of thing. Something... You might be struggling with in your life, trying to work through, and maybe it is legalism. And the Lord just keeps putting you into circumstances and situations where you are confronted with the thing that He's dealing with in your life. He still does this. I remember stories some years ago of a man who asked God to remove from his life a certain person who was causing him trouble, and the answer came, sure, who would you prefer me use instead? If God loves you enough to keep bringing up this issue in your life, maybe, friend, you should just repent of it. Just a thought. Luke says they were watching Jesus preaching in church that day, which is, by the way, the good thing. That, that's what you should do when you're in church. Look, look for Jesus. Come to see Jesus. But that's not why these boys were there. They wanted to see him heal on the Sabbath so that they would have a reason to accuse him. So the Pharisees are like those people who come to church not to hear God's Word, not to encourage others, but to find a reason to catch the preacher in doing or saying something that will reinforce their dislike of him. I hope you don't do that with me. That seems like a lot of work. I'll just give you all the reasons to dislike me. It was against the Pharisees' rules Jesus to heal on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. The, the law was that you could help someone if their life was in danger. If their life was in danger, it was permissible to involve yourself in them and just keep them from getting any worse, not actually help them. So you could put a Band-Aid on a cut, but you couldn't put any ointment on it. 
So here is this fellow with his withered hands sitting in church, listening to the Lord Jesus, expounding Scripture, and he sees Jesus, and Jesus sees him, and the Pharisees see both. And he has no idea that he's in the middle of this. And Jesus knows their thoughts. Because he's God, and you're not pulling anything over on him. And Jesus tells the man, come here. Brings the man to the front. You're going to be a sermon illustration for me today. And Jesus asks the question in verse 9, is it lawful to do good or to do harm or to save life or to destroy it on the Sabbath? And I don't think Jesus is being rhetorical here. I, ex- I think he's expecting an answer because in verse 10, it says he's looking at everyone. No one answers. Silence is thick. And the Lord breaks the silence. Stretch out your hand. In my mind, I imagine the Lord doing this without actually looking at the man, but looking at the Pharisees. Looking at them in their eyeballs. Watching their face as the man's withered hand is restored to perfect health. This was the day that I created for resting and rejoicing. Who dare you say I can't heal on the Sabbath? And then what happened? A man with a withered hand has his hand restored to perfect health. The whole church erupts in praise to Almighty God. The band breaks out in song. The charismatics are running the aisle. And everybody's saying, look what God did for my friend. Maybe that's what should have happened. I wish that was what would have happened. But that's not what happened. Verse 11. They were filled with fury. The word means unthinking rage. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And by the way, do doesn't mean fall at his feet and worship It means murder, which is coming eventually. The man with the withered hand left church, restored. And the Pharisees with their withered hearts left church, destroyed. They cared more about their man-made rules than they did for the suffering of their friend. Raged over a man's restoration. They should have rejoiced. And Jesus exposed the callousness of their hearts. Jesus showed in that Sabbath, in that synagogue that day, that their observance of God's word was never a worship of God, it was a worship of themselves. And Jesus showed that they hadn't actually read the Bible. He showed that they hadn't actually understood the Sabbath because if they had understood the Sabbath, they would have seen that the Sabbath points to Jesus. They would have seen that the Sabbath is, Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. And so we turn back to verse 5 as we close. Jesus said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
Jesus. Probably not possible for me to describe how massive of a statement that is. Almighty God, Yahweh, gave His Sabbath law to Moses on Sinai. And this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has just said two things. Number one, He is the Son of Man, the one to whom God gave all authority in heaven and on earth. And number two, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the ruler of, He's in charge of, He has authority of God's Sabbath. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath? It means that he's, He has authority over it. That the Sabbath looks to Him for fulfillment. So how does it work? Well, we can go back to what we saw at the beginning. God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. He set that day apart as a special day. And He invites His people to rejoice and to rest in His provision in their life every single week. And Jesus is saying, it's all about me. I'm the Sabbath rest. What did we celebrate last Sunday? What was last Sunday? It was Easter, Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. On what day of the week did Jesus raise? Sunday, the first day of the week. You want, one might say the eighth day. And what does that teach us? The Bible says that every Christian was buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Just what we witnessed in the baptism just a few moments ago. By faith, Christian, you were united to Christ and you were raised with Him on the eighth day. This is something that my pastor taught me. Pastor Steve taught me this. That before Christ, it was... Work, 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 rest. But on the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. The work is done. It's no longer work, 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 rest. It's rest. It is finished. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. It is a new beginning, a new creation. And the new sign that we are God's new covenant people is that we start with resting and rejoicing because the work is complete. We no longer work for six days and then finally rest. The Christian life starts with rest. There is no evening and there is no morning on the eighth day. The work is done. The early church started meeting on Sunday because of this. We start with rest. We start with the work complete. And so because the work is done, everything needed to be right with God and to be complete, we have already been given in Christ. And so we are free to spend our life serving and giving and doing good, not in order to earn God's favor, but because we already have God's favor. We are an eighth-day people. We go from resting to resting, from rejoicing to rejoicing. That's what I mean. You were made for your day off. And if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. 
Because your whole life is a working, 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 working in order to prove yourself worthy of that eternal rest. But friend, it doesn't work that way. You will never work enough in order to earn heaven. You will never be able to do enough to prove yourself worthy before Almighty God. God created a billion trillion stars with words. Do you really think He's going to be impressed because you did the right thing by helping old ladies across the street? And I have good news for you. He won't be. And He doesn't have to be. Because He bids you to come to Jesus this morning who told you, come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. All the work that you need to do in order to be made worthy before Almighty God has already been done by another. And your job is to trust Him, to believe Him, to rest in Him. Find someone after the service today and ask them to explain this in more detail to you. I know them. I know that they'd be happy to rearrange their whole week in order to meet with you and teach you about the life, death, and resurrection of Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as we close, Jesus rose on the eighth day. He earns eternal rest for all who turn to him in faith. And your life, dear Christian, is one of bringing your restless soul, still laboring under that old slave master of the law, to Christ and to rest in his finished work. And to remember that no law-keeping is necessary to make you right with God. You can rest and rejoice in the perfect law-keeping of Christ. No proving of your worth through your success and through your riches. You can rest in Christ and the riches in Him. No wallowing under the guilt of condemnation. You can rest and rejoice in forgiveness in Christ. No meriting God's favor through your good deeds. You can rest and rejoice in the merits of Christ. No more worrying about food or clothing or money. You can rest and rejoice in the provision of Christ. And there's no fearing of what man might do to you. You can rest and rejoice in what God has done for you. The resurrection of Jesus means that we are an eighth-day people. We look back on what he has done. We rest and rejoice in who He is. And we look ever forward to that day of eternal rest where there will be no evening and no morning, but there will be the light of God's glory in the Lamb of God forever, world without end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we appeal to you this morning for mercy. We have misunderstood the Sabbath because we have misunderstood the gospel. What was given to us to be rest, we have turned into legalism. Please forgive us. We've sought to make ourselves right with you and acceptable to you through our own works. And we've graded your love for us on the basis of how good we perceive ourselves to be. We're not that much different than the Pharisees. Please forgive us. 
We thank you, Jesus, for giving your life that we might be forgiven. Give us grace to receive your forgiveness and to walk in the freedom and the rest and to rejoice in you who has given him all, his all to save us. Amen. Please stand to your feet. We do a prayer confession at the end or we do a, um, an assurance of pardon at the end where we take a look at Scripture. We find a verse in Scripture that promises us that our sins are forgiven. Let's do Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us.